But because he knows on this side of the grave, we will often struggle with simple things like wondering whether or not we're really going to heaven. He's actually given us a couple signs to show us that we belong to him. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and thanks for joining me in the Fox Den. Do you ever wonder whether you're really saved? Do you ever think that maybe when you die, God will say to you, depart from me, for I never knew you? I don't think it's uncommon for some Christians to wonder whether or not they're really saved. But this thinking is actually quite problematic. So first of all, how can you lose your salvation if God did all the work? Or why would you even be concerned that you're not really saved if God is the one who did the work? Are you afraid that he didn't do the work for you? Well, if you are, we're going to take a look at a couple things that God has given us to confirm that he has claimed us as his own. But another reason why it's problematic to wonder if you're really saved is that it assumes that the work of Christ is insufficient. In other words, God has done a lot of the work and now it depends on you. So it's really related to the first point. Assuming that salvation rests on you, but also it's to suggest that the work of Christ is not enough. So I hope you can see that if you're wondering or you're concerned of whether or not you're really a believer, if you're going to go to heaven when you die, you're really making a statement about God and his salvation and the work of Christ. And hopefully you can see that that's problematic. Well, here's the good news. First of all, God is gracious. He knows that you're going to struggle. And he's not going to condemn you because you doubt him at times. But because he knows on this side of the grave, we will often struggle with simple things like wondering whether or not we're really going to heaven. He's actually given us a couple signs to show us that we belong to him. Furthermore, this is a reason why going to church is very important. Now again, I know that some of my listeners are not in a place where they're able to go to a church, and I can appreciate that. But for the rest of us who are in a place where there's a good church nearby, it's important for us to go to church. One, it's important that we go to church so that we can gather as the people of God to worship him. Two, it's important for us to go to church so that we can hear the voice of Christ. And at this point, I'd like to encourage you to listen to episodes 34, 26, and 23. But going to church is also important because there's two signs that God has given us that we do in the church. And these signs are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now at this point, I want to take you to Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 92. And it asks, what is a sacrament? And it answers by saying, a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein, by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Now, many of you may be concerned by the term sacrament, but there was a key word in the definition that I want to direct you to, and that was ordinance. So those of you who are not Presbyterian, ordinance makes sense to you. You know the ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Well, that's what a sacrament is. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are sacraments, the same thing. And as the definition for a sacrament suggests, it's a holy ordinance, But notice it's not just an ordinance that the church has made up. It's instituted by Christ. Now notice also in that definition that by the use of sensible signs, 
Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. So what does it mean by sensible signs? Well, it means signs that you can touch, you can taste, you can see. For baptism, that would be water. For the Lord's Supper, or for communion, that would be bread and wine. So these are sensible signs, things that we can touch, taste, see. And in those signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Now, what does that mean? It means that as a person is baptized or as people receive the Lord's Supper, they're a stand-in for Christ and the benefits. That's what they represent. But also, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are sealed to believers. The term sealed is a Roman term. Back in Roman time, a person of authority had a signet ring, and that would authenticate a letter. So you would drip hot wax on a letter, and he would take his signet ring, and he would mash that ring into the wax to seal the letter. And you knew the letter came from that individual because he marked it with his signet ring. You see, the point of this question is that the sacrament is a seal. It is a mark of God on his people. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs in which we are marked by God to be his people. Now let me just quickly touch on the Lord's Supper first. Question 96 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the Lord's Supper? And it answers by saying the Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth. And the worthy receivers are, not after a corporal or carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. In other words, when we receive the Lord's Supper, Christ is represented along with all the benefits in him. Now keep in mind, the Lord's Supper is not for anybody. The Lord's Supper is for believers alone. A non-believer who receives the Lord's Supper is receiving nothing other than bread and wine. But a believer receiving the Lord's Supper receives Christ and all the benefits in him. You see, it's a confirmation that they have it. Now, at this point, I do want to acknowledge that not everybody sees this the same way. So, for example, Anglicans see when they receive the bread and wine, they're receiving Christ. They're not merely receiving a representation of Christ. We would see, as Presbyterians, that we're receiving bread and wine, but we're receiving Christ spiritually. We're actually receiving him, but not in the bread and wine. Those are representations. And then typically Baptists see that communion is merely a time of remembering Christ's death. So I just wanted to acknowledge that not everybody sees this the same way. But this is the takeaway that I want to give you. When you gather with the people of God and you receive the Lord's Supper, Christ himself is giving himself to you, and he is telling you that you belong to him. You see, the Lord's Supper is more than just remembering what Christ has done. It's true that we remember what Christ has done when we receive the Lord's Supper, but it's more than that. God is marking you as his own. He is feeding you with Christ because you belong to him. So the Lord's Supper is one sign that God has given to show that he has claimed you as his own. The other is baptism. Question 94 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is baptism? And it answers by saying, baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water 
in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, does signify and seal our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. So baptism is a sign that your sins have been washed away. That's what it said, the washing with water, in what we call the Trinitarian formula, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But notice that it signifies that you have been engrafted into Christ. It's a sign. Baptism is a sign that you have been grafted into Christ. But again, here it also uses the term seal. Think of the signet ring. Baptism is a mark that God has claimed you as his own. It's the signet ring. It's the seal. How do you know that you're a believer? You look at your baptism. That's a sign and a seal that you have been engrafted into Christ. But notice what it says at the end. Our engagement to be the Lord's. Your baptism is a sign and it is a seal that you've been engrafted into Christ and that you belong to him. You see, baptism is far more than just an act of obedience. It is true that God has called us to be baptized. And there are some denominations who see baptism as an act of obedience. God said, be baptized, I've been baptized. But that misses the mark. There's something far more significant going on. In baptism, God has claimed you as his own. But there's something else in baptism I want you to see. If you go to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, you'll see that when we were baptized, we were united to Christ in his death. So your baptism is more than just an act of obedience. It's also more than God claiming you as his own, which he did. But your baptism is a sign that you have been united to Christ in his death and burial. In fact, Paul's encouragement at the end of verse 4 is to walk in newness of life. Why? Because you died with Christ. Christ's crucifixion is your crucifixion. Paul said the same thing in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. That's a past tense. Paul wrote that years after Jesus ascended to heaven. So your baptism is a sign that God has marked you as his own. It's a sign that your sins have been washed away. It's a sign that you belong to the people of God. And it's a sign that you have been united to Christ in his death. That's what baptism is. So if you wonder, am I going to heaven? Look back at your baptism. You've been marked by God. You've been united to Christ in his death. You see, baptism is a sign that God has given you to show you that he claimed you as his own. You wonder if you're going to heaven. Look at the Lord's Supper. When you receive that bread and wine, that's a meal for Christ's people. Now, I get it. There's non-believers sitting next to you, possibly, eating bread and wine, and you can't distinguish who is who, but you don't need to distinguish who is who. That's not your job. What you have to know is that when you receive bread and wine, God is claiming you as his own. He's given it to you. Now, I do want to say this. If you're wondering if you're going to go to heaven, I would argue that's a pretty good indication that you're a believer. Non-believers don't concern themselves with that question. So kind of keep that in the back of your mind. But just know that you can look back at your baptism and you can know that God has claimed you as his own. You have been united to Christ in his death and that your sins have been washed away. All of them, past, present, and future. So the Lord's Supper and baptism are signs that God has given us to show us that he has claimed us as his own. 
Now, I do want to say at this point that we're probably not going to agree on every point of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And my purpose here is not to get you to see things as a Presbyterian would. My real purpose is to encourage you in those times when you struggle, wondering if indeed you're going to go to heaven. And I want to encourage you to look back at your baptism and know what God is doing in the Lord's Supper. Now, let me throw a question out for you and get you to think about this one. What would you think if you have a family member, was part of the church, was baptized, and at some point walked away from the faith? What would you think? Typically, the answer would be, well, he's going to hell unless he repents and returns and rededicates his life to Christ. Now, sure, he needs to repent because it's sinful for him to deny Christ. But my encouragement would be this. I'm fairly certain he's going to come back to the faith. Now, here's another question. What happens if he dies before he comes back to the church? Most people would say, well, he obviously went to hell. And I would argue not so fast. I would rely on his baptism. You see, we can't see a person's heart. We can't see what God is doing. What we can see is who God marked. Now, does that mean that everybody being baptized is going to heaven? Well, probably not. It seems to me that Esau didn't go to heaven, and certainly he was circumcised back in the Old Testament. However, quite frankly, we can't really assume that now, can we? We don't know. We do know from Malachi and from Romans 9 that God hated Esau, and it seems to be more talking about the nation of Edom. But at the end of the day, we don't know. We're not God. We don't know who made it into heaven, who didn't. But if salvation is a work of God, and a person has been baptized, I can only assume that God has claimed that person as his own. It's not up to me to determine whether or not he's going to heaven. I'm going to assume that the, the Holy Spirit is working in his heart some way, somehow. But the point of this is to say that baptism isn't just something we do. It's a mark of God. Now, I don't expect you to agree with me on all of this. My purpose isn't to persuade you. My purpose is to help you understand the significance of baptism. And because baptism is a mark of God on a person, I have to come to the conclusion that a person who has walked away is eventually going to be saved, not because the baptism is so special that it saves him, though Peter made that very statement in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. But I'm resting on the grace of God. God saves by his grace alone, through the work of Christ alone. And when he marks somebody in baptism, I'm assuming that God is going to finish the work. And the work of salvation is not dependent on the individual at all. Now, I did have one listener who wanted me to talk a little bit about infant baptism. So let me do that here. As you know, some denominations baptize infants and others don't. And my purpose here is not to persuade you and try to convince you that you should hold to infant baptism. But I do want to explain why Presbyterians and others baptize infants. Now, let me just say I'm a Presbyterian, so I can't speak for Lutherans, Episcopalians, and Anglicans. I can only really give you a Presbyterian perspective. But the first thing to note is I understand there is no place in the Bible that says baptize infants. But let me also say there's not a place in the Bible that says don't baptize infants. And let me also say that it seems that God has been fairly ambiguous when it comes to infant baptism. So we have to begin by saying that there were really only two sacraments in the Bible, and both were transformed by Christ in the New Testament. 
So I don't think anybody would really argue that the Passover of the Old Testament was converted by Jesus into the Lord's Supper. But Presbyterians would understand that baptism and circumcision are the same thing. There's just a different administration. Now let me take a slight detour at this point and recommend a YouTube video for you to watch. It's called The Churchy Fruits Learn About Courage. And it's on the Lutheran Satire YouTube channel. That video does a great job explaining circumcision. And I think it will give you a clue of why they circumcised boys in the Old Testament, but they baptize men and women in the New Testament. So with that out of the way, let me again say that we understand circumcision and baptism as to be the same sacrament, just administered differently. And we go to Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where we see the two of them together. So perhaps one reason why we don't see anything in the Bible that says that you're to baptize infants is because that it was understood that infants were to receive this sign. So boys would have received circumcision, but now boys and girls would be baptized. So it seems Paul understood in Colossians chapter 2 that circumcision was now baptism. Another place that we would go to support the idea of infant baptism is Acts chapter 16. And there we see the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And in verse 30, he asked Paul and Silas what he must do to be saved. And they answer him in verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Did you catch that? If he believes, they will be saved. In fact, if we look at the original language and the verb translated believe, it's a singular. You see, they're calling him as an individual to believe, and they tell him that he will be saved and his household. And then notice what happens in verse 33. He was baptized and all of his family. Now, it's true at this point that we don't know if there were children. We would assume there are when he's talking about family. But he was called to faith. His family wasn't called to faith. And we have no indication here of whether or not they actually came to faith. Another place we would go to talk about infant baptism is Acts chapter 2, verse 39. And Peter says that the promise is for you and your children. So the promise of God is for not just us individually, it's for our children. In fact, when it comes to circumcision, we see the exact same language in Genesis 17. In verses 1 to 14, we see the institution of circumcision. And in verse 7, God says that he is going to establish his covenant between him and Abraham and his offspring. And we know in circumcision that boys that were eight years old were to be circumcised. So children who could not come to faith by their own cognitive ability were given the mark of God. So if circumcision and baptism are the same thing, just administered differently, which is how we would see it not only as Presbyterians, but I know the Anglicans would see it the same way, then certainly children are to be baptized because children were circumcised. Now let's take a look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. And this is known as the Great Commission. At this point, Jesus has already risen from the dead, and he's meeting with his disciples, and he commissions them to go and make disciples. But how are they to make disciples? Well, there's two parts to this, baptizing them and teaching them. So the point here is you cannot make a disciple without baptizing them. In our churches, when somebody comes to faith, 
we baptize them. And by baptizing them, we signify that they are part of the church. And this is across all denominations. But now let's direct this to our children. According to Matthew 28, verse 19, you can't disciple your children unless you baptize your children. Jesus commissioned his disciples to make disciples by baptizing and teaching. So according to this passage, in order to disciple your children, you have to baptize them and then teach them. And also, if we're not baptizing our children, then they're not part of the church. Because if an adult makes a profession of faith, what do we do to bring them into the church? We baptize them. So we would argue, unless the children are baptized, they're outside the church. Because baptism is an initiation rite into the church, meaning it is a sign that somebody has been brought into the church of Christ. And then just one last point on infant baptism. And for me personally, this was one of the significant things that shifted my thinking. How are you saved? Are you saved by making a decision for Jesus? No, you're not. You make a decision for Jesus because you've been saved. You see, in American evangelicalism, we get it backwards. We think that God has done the work, and now it's up to you to make a decision. But according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, you're spiritually dead apart from Christ. So how could you ever make a decision if you're spiritually dead? But we see in verses 4 and following that God makes you alive with Christ. You see, that's when you made a decision for Jesus, is when you were made spiritually alive. And then down in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved. So if you're saved by God's grace, and God made you alive when you were dead, then your salvation wasn't dependent on your decision. Therefore, because salvation is not dependent on your decision, but is based purely on the grace of God, infant baptism makes sense because it's a sign of grace on our children, which is consistent with Genesis 17, Acts 2, and Acts 16, where the promise is for us and our children, and the Philippian jailer was baptized along with his family when he was called to faith. Now again, I don't expect you to agree with me concerning infant baptism. It does take a while for people to kind of work through this, but for me, one of the things that was significant was the fact that salvation is an act of God's grace. And because it's an act of God's grace, it was easy to see that this sign of baptism was applied to children. All right, so let me just say, my purpose in this, again, is to discuss infant baptism because one of my listeners asked me to talk about it. But I want you to see that baptism is a sign of grace. And because it's a sign of grace and not a sign of my decision for Jesus— it can be applied to the children of believers. Now, certainly I haven't discussed every aspect of infant baptism, and I'm sure I've generated more questions, but I want to leave you with this. God has given you signs to show you that he claimed you as his own. When you struggle and you wonder if you're going to heaven, look back at your baptism and know that God extended his grace to you and he united you to Christ in his death. He marked you as his own. He washed away your sins. When you go to church and you partake in the Lord's Supper, know that God is claiming you as his own. He's telling you that your sins are forgiven because your sins were put on Christ and his body was broken and his blood was shed. And because that is true, your sins are forgiven and therefore you're saved. 
not because of your decision, but because of the work of Christ. So be encouraged. God knows you may struggle. That's why he's given you signs. So when you do struggle, look back on the signs that God has given you. 